0: Recovery Elevator, episode 14.
1: I was looking for a way of escaping reality, and alcohol was the quickest and easiest way to do that.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app tracker on my iPhone, I have been sober for eight months, two weeks, zero days, nine hours, 16 minutes, and 28, 29, 30 Seconds Now, the iPhone app available on iPhone and Android has only been out for two months, yet we're already on version three. Like sobriety, it's a work in progress. So if you do have the app, check your updates. There are a couple things that we have improved. Um, number one, the iPhone, it used to get stuck on a screen when you try to input your date, but there are some things that still need to be worked out in the future. If you go and change anything on your settings about, for example, you, you go, ah, you know, I think I drank five drinks instead of four drinks then you will need to re-input the sobriety date. You're gonna lose a couple hours and minutes and things like that, but you still get the date right. You just have to backlog it. This app, it's incredibly simple. It's basically a timer. However, for myself, it's incredibly vital to my recovery. You've gotta track your progress and never forget what happened, for me, eight months and two weeks ago. Not so much about what happened, for example, what jail cell I woke up in, I just can't forget of how bad it was. So you've got to track your progress. And keep in mind, time is always moving forward. Your last drink, it's getting further and further away. And your memory of your last drink, it is also getting further and further away. But you can't forget your last drink and really just how terrible it was while you're drinking. The app also has a pretty cool feature. It's got a financial benefit there. You can see how much money you have saved. Put that money towards a vacation. A vacation in sobriety? They're pretty cool. You'll probably remember more of it. It's also going to tell you how many calories you've saved. Believe it or not, one gram of alcohol has seven calories in it. A gram of fat has nine calories. A gram of protein, I think it has, or carbohydrates, I think it has four. And I just went off the top of my head from my old science class, so I'm pretty sure those numbers might be a little skewed. But basically, they're empty calories being tracked that have no longer entered your bloodstream, your body, and being digested. On today's podcast, you get two, not one, but two interviews. We're going to hear from Becca, who is not an alcoholic. However, she is a psychiatrist. She's going to tell you about how important it is to be honest with your doctor or professional when chatting with him about your alcohol problems. After that, I have Randy. He's been sober for eight and a half years. He's got some great stuff to say. So let's get into it. In Recovery Elevator, I'd like to invite Becca to the show, and she is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Now, Recovery Elevator, usually I have alcoholics on the show. Now, Becca is not an alcoholic, but she works in a field where she has to navigate and work with alcoholics. What I mean, I want to talk to Becca about how people use alcohol to self-medicate. So Becca, how are you?
2: I'm doing well today, Paul. Thanks.
0: Good. I'm so glad you're here with me. And Becca, let me just tell you why I want to have you on the show is because I personally sat in a chair in front of a psychologist in 2007 and she asked me, and this is after like the third or fourth session, she goes, Paul, do you maybe have an alcohol problem? Or are you an alcoholic? And this is after I came back from Spain where I was blacking out five to seven nights a week. And I looked at her and I thought I actually gave her the courtesy of thinking, but I was offended. And my answer was, no, I, I'm not an alcoholic. But Becca, tell me how important it is to get to the root or to be honest in the chair. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the, the people that I work with, have what's called a, a dual diagnosis. And so they may use alcohol in excess. However, they also struggle with anxiety on a day-to-day basis or, or depression or difficulty concentrating, anything like that, which, which may be contributing to their, the reason why they, they're using alcohol in excess. Um, in, that, in that context, typically, if I think that somebody may be using alcohol too much, I ask them, you know, how much are you drinking? How, how many days of the week? Do you need a drink in the morning to, you know, feel better? And kind of a rule of thumb is whatever they tell me, I, I typically double it or triple it. And the reason for that is to just keep in mind that alcohol is is probably a factor in, in diagnosis and treatment.
0: Usually double or triple it. That is amazing. And you probably could have quadrupled it with me when I was in that chair. Really? It, yeah. It, it took me so long to finally sit in a chair and look at doctor who there's there's privacy acts in place they can't tell anybody or they will get in trouble I would just say no I don't think drinking's the problem I think it's my anxiety because that was the reason I quit drinking besides all the other terrible factors but my anxiety got so out of control and I thought I had an anxiety problem but the real root was was alcohol so you said dual diagnosis and I might have a try or quadruple diagnosis but How important is it to really find like, is it alcohol or is it depression or is it depression leading to alcohol? I mean, that's got to be a hard job, right, Becca?
2: And it's really important for, you know, both uh, the therapeutic relationship to to get on the same page of what are we focusing on, what are we treating. Um, and what I do a lot of times is I prescribe medications to treat things like anxiety or lessen anxiety or depression or mood swings. And so if, you know, I have somebody in my office who's, who isn't being fully honest, we're going to try all sorts of treatments, medications, ther- therapies and we might not get anywhere and and that's going to lead to a drug trials that are are unnecessary medications that maybe were never needed and and also just a longer period of time where this person is going to keep keep drinking and not feeling better and i and i think that's the important part of being honest is that we need to treat the cause uh, of what's what's making someone need need to and want to and have to drink to excess
0: You just said medications that perhaps weren't ever needed. Becca, I could probably count on 10 or 15 fingers and toes of medications that I have been on for months at a time that, I never even really needed to be on because the real problem was alcohol. And tell me about one thing. I have taken medications where on the label it says, do not drink. Let's talk about benzos and alcohol. When I want to say benzos. I mean, listeners, I mean, I mean, diazepam, Valium, clonopin. I, I was given benzos for my anxiety, but of course I was drinking on that. Now, how, how does the alcohol counter effect the, the effect of the medication?
2: Yeah, so essentially, benzodiazepines, like you mentioned a few, also there's Xanax, Ativan. They work a lot, of, a lot like alcohol in the brain and, and in the neurobiology of the brain, and so a big problem is when you combine the two you can actually have a pretty bad reaction which could include death and that's you know that's no joke because as we know if you drink yourself to excess there's a chance that you could not wake up now if you add in a medication like Xanax or Ativan clonopin, you're basically doubling tripling the effects of alcohol and c- could cause that respiratory depression to happen at a lower threshold, I should say. So, sure. oh, I'm just going to have five beers. I always have five beers. You know, they're high alcohol content, twenty four ounce beers. I'm also going to take some some of the Xanax that my doctor prescribed me. Well, you just maybe had ten beers. You throw in hard alcohol, and we really, you know, it's hard to anticipate what that combination is going to do.
0: And Becca, talk to me about depression. And alcohol, because I have taken antidepressants and I thought, you know, the depression was, was the real problem, not the alcohol. Mm -hmm. How difficult is it trying to treat the depression when they're taking in lots of quantities of a depressant called alcohol?
2: Exactly. And so the two, a lot of times an antidepressant and alcohol are are fighting for attention in your brain. So you're, you're taking this medication that's supposed to increase serotonin in the right areas to, to make you feel better, be more motivated, have more energy, feel more joy. And then you're taking alcohol, which is a, a depressant, um, that's at a central nervous system level. And as well as takes away your energy, your motivation, uh, drains your, um, thought processes. So you can't think very well. And then not to mention the next day you wake up and the depression cycle. Oh, I forgot to take my antidepressant. I drank. I told, I told myself I wouldn't. And now I'm ashamed of myself. So I'm in the cycle. they, They don't work well together. That that's for sure.
0: Ashamed. I'm ashamed to tell my friends, but I'm also ashamed to tell the person I'm paying money to in a closed, safe environment. That is the terrible thing about this
2: and that's a good point Paul you say you know you're coming here to receive a service you're paying for the service whether it's out of your pocket or your insurance Mm -hmm. and so to not be fully honest you're wasting your money really
0: yeah money my time and your time right now Becca tell me what listeners can hopefully experience in the first month two three four five months a year down the road when they do Decide to take the plunge and quit drinking, and they do have dual diagnoses be alcoholic and depression. Or, what have you seen right. personally when people just eliminate alcohol from their diet?
2: So, honestly, the first month is probably going to be terrible. Um, you know, people are used to using alcohol either to self-medicate their anxiety, to self-medicate thinking about their depression. You know, it's not necessarily taking away their depression, but you don't have to think about it if you're blacked out and numb. So the first month or, or couple months are, are going to be really difficult, and those symptoms that you thought maybe you were self-medicating may seem worse. Uh, we might also, if you're working with somebody with your mental health, we might also see that some diagnoses that we didn't know were there come out. As you get away from alcohol further, your concentration is typically going to improve and your anxiety is going to decrease. Your motivation is going to improve and usually your life structure, like your your sleep-wake cycle, let's talk about that, that's going to improve. So when people are drinking, they're usually a lot of times drinking until they black out or pass out. And so they're in no sort of real circadian rhythm. And so when we see people return to this, uh, a lot of areas of their life improve in that they're getting up at a decent time. They feel like they have more energy. They have more motivation. Once they become more honest with somebody who maybe could prescribe a medication, we might skip steps A, B, and C that weren't needed and, and find the right medication to keep them sober.
0: Everything you said, including the first 30 days being terrible, pretty much mirrored my sobriety in the last six months and five days right now and especially the sleep cycle when i was drinking sure i wouldn't black out seven nights a week but i could not fall asleep without alcohol and then comes the ambience then comes the tylenol pms then comes the copious amounts of nyquil but in sobriety i phase that stuff out and the sleeping this the circadian rhythms like you talked about are so important and thank Mm -hmm. you so much for sharing that. Becca, I know you're busy, but what parting piece of guidance can you give to somebody who's thinking about quitting alcohol?
2: I think honesty and openness with yourself and those who are trying to help you. When you're first deciding you're not going to use alcohol, you might not be like you, Paul, and want to share with the world uh, your journey. You're ashamed. You don't want to tell people. But when you come into an office and meet with someone who says to you the first day, hey, everything you tell me is confidential unless you tell me you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, be Mm -hmm. honest. Be honest. Uh, the time frame it's going to take to help you is, is going to be shorter if, if you're honest.
0: I wish I'd have heard that piece of advice, be honest with your medical professional years ago. So, yeah. Becca, thank you so much for joining us. Greatly appreciated.
2: All right. Thanks, Paul.
0: Bye-bye. I found it astonishing but it makes a lot of sense that a psychiatrist has their own rule of thumb in place which is basically add two or three triple quadruple whatever amount of alcohol you say they're going to quadruple that or triple that and assume that's the amount that you're drinking for me the catalyst for sobriety was anxiety i got anxiety so bad after i drank and i just didn't put two and two together i would go on a binge and get incredibly drunk And I would have anxiety the next morning so bad that I would swear myself off whatever I thought was contributing to that anxiety problem, but I never put two and two together Could the alcohol possibly creating the anxiety, and you betcha. In fact, the anxiety after eight months and two weeks of sobriety, it hasn't fully dissipated, but I can tell you right now, it's a whole heck of a lot better. And that is where the downward spiral starts because I know after a couple weeks of anxiety, or a prolonged duration of anxiety, I know exactly what will have the quickest short-term, keywords short-term cure of that anxiety is alcohol. But what happens when I sober up? That could be the next morning. Heck, it could be five days later. Anxiety is returning. Will it return at the same level as before? No, it will increase. The anxiety will come back stronger. So that's the double-edged sword with alcohol and anxiety for me. And I'll explain more later in a different episode of how my anxiety attack in Spain, how I got into a taxi cab, told them, I am having a heart attack, disregard all traffic lights, just hurry as fast as you can to the hospital. I thought I was having a heart attack, but it was anxiety due to alcohol. It's not fun to say this on a podcast, but I probably do have a dual diagnosis, a tri-diagnosis, and not probably, I do. I have an anxiety disorder. I have a focus disorder. But teasing out what is really the issue at hand now that I can sit and chat with a medical professional and be honest with them is a whole heck of a lot easier than before when the doctor just had this glazed look on his face being like, uh, did you drink last night? And I'm like, no, no. Uh, how much do you drink? Well, not much. And, you know, ever so often, you know, like a normal person. Uh, let's talk about your drinking habits. I told you, doctor, I don't drink that much. It's so much easier now to really get to the root of the problem. But now let's hear from Randy. And Recovery Elevator, I am excited to invite Randy to the podcast. Randy, how are you?
1: I'm doing really, really well. I'm excited to do this um, and see where it goes. If (laughs) I can help someone out with their process, I'm ready to do that. Thanks
0: for joining us. Let's dive right into it.
1: Randy, how long have you been sober?
0: It has been eight and a half
1: years eight years and five months, if we're going to get really specific about it. Sure. Eight and a half years of, of, of no alcohol.
0: Now backtrack me back eight and eight years, five months ago to when your elevator had perhaps hit its bottom and (laughs) what made you finally decide it was, it was time to stop drinking.
1: Well, I think everybody who hits that bottom point has their own really dramatic and spectacular story to tell. And I'm no different on that. Um, I got a DUI and it was really, really messy and scary because I did not even remember getting behind the wheel of the car. Mm -hmm. And that's when I suddenly had to face it in a really dramatic way. No, this shit's real. No more playing around. No more pretending that it's not a problem because clearly it is. And I haven't been able to take a drink since. I don't have the same recovery story that a lot of people have where they struggle every day not to take that drink. I haven't been able to take a drink. The very next day, I tried to take a drink and I simply could not. And I dumped it out and it's like, okay, this is it. It's done. Never again.
0: Randy, you had a choice. You decided to hit the stop button, get outside, and exit the elevator. And a lot of people continue to ride that thing down to the bitter end. And for that, I congratulate you. And and before... Before that moment, can you talk about perhaps your drinking habits? Did you ever try to control your drinking? For example, switching from you know, vodka to uh, you know micro brews, or don't drink before a certain time in the afternoon. Was was that ever an issue before the DUI? Any of those control efforts were always half-hearted, mm-hmm. and there was
1: there was never any real control. There were times where I wasn't drinking as much, and I felt like that was a rationalization hey i'm not drinking that much it's okay i only drink a couple of beers a day maybe 3 times a week no big deal other people do it it's fine um but then i would have those really messy blackout drunk nights that i could not justify you know there were periods in my past where i was you know drinking to excess five nights a week mm-hmm. always at the bar and i would show up at the bar even if i didn't have money because i knew people would buy me drinks because I would hook them up on their nights when they were broke. So there was always a way to get a drink. And yeah, I just, there were times when it was very, very messy. And I made some really stupid judgment calls. I got uh, jailed a couple of times for shoplifting. I was doing a lot of drugs. I was just being a complete loser for better, you know, for lack of a better word. And there's a lot of psychology that you can, you know, look at there. But basically what it came down to is that, I was looking for a way of
0: escaping reality,
1: and alcohol was the quickest and easiest way to do that.
0: You said one word in there called rationalization, and I'm gonna throw out a synonym called justification. You said, yep. well, everybody else is doing it. You know, oh, I'm only having two to three beers, three to four times a week. This this seems like normal drinking, and that is the problem with with justification and the control issue recovery elevator. And you said before, you know, blacked out, getting behind your car for a DUI. Now, I, in the morning, have woken up and I'm like, oh, I pull out my phone and a hungover stupor and I call. I'm like, hey, Brady, can you take me down to the bar? I got to pick my car up. And I'll walk out the front door and my car is in the parking lot, which mm-hmm. means I drove it home. So I know exactly what that's like i just didn't get pulled over for that so so randy talk to me about perhaps how your 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 alcohol use might have impacted relationships with family friends (laughs) and work and 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 this is an honest question did did anybody you know ever say you might be drinking too much
1: uh yeah definitely um there were times early on in the process where i had friends tell me to my face they could not be around me anymore because I partied all the time Mm -hmm. and you know at that point in life it was alcohol LSD marijuana occasionally cocaine just you know being stupid and messy and people couldn't be around that and at the time I didn't care okay fine bye see you later Mm -hmm. Um, there was one really good friend later in the process closer to the end who actually sat me down and said look I think you have a problem And I think you should look at it. I think you drink too much and you should consider talking to someone about that. And of course I was offended. Couldn't believe that they had the nerve to tell me that and was not able to see it. It took a lot of, it took a lot of reminders from life to actually see finally that I did have a problem. And that it wasn't something I could talk away or that I could manipulate. It's like, no, I can't drink in a healthy way. It just isn't going to happen for me.
0: And I, Recovery Elevator, am not the one to tell you you have a drinking problem. That is not for me to decide. And that is the one only decision that you can decide for yourself. And and Randy, you just said there are, were a lot of life reminders that you were drinking too much. And even a very good friend spoke to you about the same thing. And it's amazing. Tell me about you know how you were offended and you probably denied it because that's that's happened to me too. I'm like, oh, come on, get out of here. What was, what was that like?
1: Well, and that's just it. You get offended, you deny it all completely. You won't admit it to yourself. Um, I could say that I was an alcoholic, but I was a functional alcoholic and that made it okay. Sure. And all my friends were functional alcoholics. We went to work, we got our job done. And so what if we drank every flipping night? that was you know and that was just the normal in my world at that point so when i decided to finally say okay no i can't drink anymore drinking is no longer part of my life i had a hard time reconciling that my my new way of being with my old set of friends and that was a big challenge for me
0: so Randy, tell me what types of changes that were necessary for you to make <laughs> to, to successfully quit drinking. Well, um, I first of all had
1: to get very clear with myself and with everyone around me that I simply wasn't going to drink ever again, period. No questions, no, no negotiations. It was just a fact. I will not be drinking. If you guys want to drink when you go out, that's fine. And I'll go with you, but I will not be drinking. Don't try to buy me a beer. Don't offer me. Don't ask me. I will not. And that had to be incredibly clear. And by making that very clear, I was able to keep a majority of the friends that I had. They were on their own path. I couldn't make them stop. and Many of them didn't need to, but I just had to be very clear and direct with them that these are my boundaries that I will be sticking to. And if there's a problem, then we can't hang out.
0: And by making it very clear, you created an atmosphere of accountability, Randy. And you made it so very clear to say, do not buy me a drink. I will not be drinking. Look, you guys can drink and do all that stuff. And I might be around you, but I will not be participating in those, in in those activities. And what that does, you tell somebody of what's going on. And, and, and that is very important. So nice job on that, Randy. Exactly. And those people who were my real friends, they understood that
1: it was a problem for me. They saw me living a very messy lifestyle too. And th- it was important to them that they were able to support me by being clear about you know what was appropriate, what wasn't, and not asking me to join them at the bar if I wasn't feeling like it, not pressuring me to show up at a drinking event. It's like, no, I don't want to be there. It's not because I can't handle it, but because I don't want to be around a bunch of drunk people. And (laughs) I find that I'm much less tolerant of drunk people now than I was when I was drinking. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you went there, Randy, because people ask me all the time. They're like, man, what's the worst part about not drinking? Well, I'll tell you right now, the worst part about not drinking is anything after 11 p.m. or or midnight and just dealing with drunk people. Oh, my goodness. It's it's so miserable.
1: Yeah, I, I can't handle it. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting more patient now as I'm getting older and I've been doing this a while, but it's, yeah, it's not my idea of fun to be around a bunch of people who are sharing a common experience that I'm not sharing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not even about the drinking itself. It's the fact that these people are all sharing that same experience that has to do with being drunk and enjoying that feeling. And I'm over here drinking my club soda. I'm not on the same wavelength as they are. And that's fine, but you know why do I put myself through it? So it's very rare that you're going to find me at a bar for any reason these days.
0: Now, recovery elevator. I am going to sound like a broken record, but Randy, it sounds like you got outside of your comfort zone to successfully quit drinking. Is that correct? Um,
1: at the time, I didn't see it in those terms, but absolutely, and it has been very uncomfortable, especially in those early times. Something I want to get really clear on too is that I didn't go through AA. I don't, I'm, I'm not aligned with how AA works and some of their basic concepts. Um, but I did get support. I had a group therapy session that I was ordered by the courts to attend. And as much as I thought it was absolutely stupid. At the time, looking back and you see, no, know, they gave me valuable information about what the recovery process is like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that people need to have available to them, just the timeline of what they could expect from their own psychology and their own physiology as they go through the detox process. Because there are times where you go through deep, deep depressions and deep, you know psychological drama over the fact that, you know, you don't have these chemicals, the same chemicals in your brain anymore, and your brain needs to readjust. And then there's times where you feel massive euphoria. They call it the pink clouds phase, where everything is just happy and great. And that's like, you know, three or four weeks in, and you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, I got this lit. That doesn't last very long. <laughs> no, no.
0: And, and, and my pink cloud lasted me about nine to 10 months. And listeners, I made it two and a half years at one point. And my plan was simply not to put an alcoholic beverage in my hand and raise my hand to my mouth and drink. That was my plan. And it didn't work. And that is why I'm redoubling my efforts. And I'm creating a podcast because Randy, you are helping me stay sober right now. Just us chatting.
1: Oh, know. my pleasure, of course. And anytime I can talk to somebody and support them in this process, I want to do that. Um, something that you had mentioned earlier, and I, I, I picked up on it on your introductory uh, episode was that this was a struggle and that this was a challenge and that that it was something that you had to work really hard at. And I really wanted to come on the podcast simply so I could offer a different point of view, because it's only hard if you just, if you say it's going to be hard,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you decide it's going to be a struggle and it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. Well, guess what? That's what you're in for. You're in for the hardest fight of your life. But if you look at it and say, you know What? This is going to be a joyful process. I am going to step into health and well-being and valuing myself and honoring my body and honoring my mind by feeding my body and mind with nutritious content, whether that's good food, lots of water, um, reading good books that are going to support me in my process, finding positive aspects of my life that I can really focus on. Then that is going to give you just as much strength and power, if not more than the whole, I'm going to fight this with every core of my being.
0: No, you don't have to. It doesn't have to be a fight. You can let go of the struggle. Exactly. And you are going to focus your efforts on something new and, and, and healthier. And, and Randy, all I know is my perilous and arduous journey with alcohol, and it's been difficult and it has been a struggle. So any other point of view is greatly appreciated on this podcast. So thank you for sharing that. And, and tell me what would, what it was like for you? You, you mentioned the word detox. What were the first 24 hours, the 72 hours? What was the first week and month and, and year like?
1: Um, the first two or three days. I spent largely locked in my room and doing a lot of crying because I had just had this DUI and it totally turned my world upside down. And I figured that I had absolutely destroyed my life. That, yeah, I was looking at, you know, all kinds of legal consequences. Was I going to be able to keep my job because I wasn't able to show up for work the next day? you know, there were a lot of really huge questions that were hanging over me. And I spent a lot of time just really feeling sorry for myself and crying a lot. And I think that's a valuable process. I think that you have to give yourself to the emotion and let it truly express itself. But then after that, it was just, okay, I'm just back to work and I'm doing what I need to do. And I've got, you know, group counseling twice a week. I've got private individual uh, therapy once a week that I get to really focus on and I get to take everything, all the information and all the feedback and really, really do the work because yeah, those first few weeks, it does take dedication and commitment because it's not a habit yet. And so you have to really be disciplined and practice, practice, practice new ways of being. And then later, yeah, it becomes a habit and you don't even think about it. I can't remember the last time it even occurred to me to wonder if I could have a drink or not. It just does not even occur to me. There's tons of alcohol in the house I live in because my housemates have alcohol. I couldn't even tell you where it's at because it's just, it's not a part of my reality these
0: days. Now let's just discuss some quick questions and if possible, Randy, 20 second to 30 second answers, but if you got more input, feel free to go over. Randy, what was holding you back from finally quitting drinking? admitting that i had a problem at all i couldn't admit it randy when did the light bulb go off and you finally had the courage to quit drinking um the day after that dui when i got
1: two sips into a bottle of beer and just couldn't stomach it and i turned it upside down dumped it out in the sink right there and that moment is it's it's engraved in my brain as
0: the moment when i stopped drinking forever And what is your favorite resource in recovery? It can be a book. It can be an app. It can be a 12-step program. It can even be a podcast, Randy. What's the best resource for you? I have a lot of books that I absolutely swear by.
1: And in terms of something that would be supportive to someone who's getting through their own recovery process, The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle, it's really a powerful look at the choices we make to be present in the moment and how often in modern society we take other we do everything we can to get out of the present moment and alcohol is part of that.
0: Randy what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners in early recovery or who are thinking about stopping drinking?
1: If you are questioning whether you have a drinking problem you know the answer and don't pretend not to. You know whether you have a problem or not and if you've been asking yourself and struggling with it there's your answer. That's like critical and key. And then the other thing is get support, whether that's from a therapist or a friend, bring someone into your life, let them know what you're experiencing, let them know what you are feeling. Be open, be vulnerable, be honest, painfully honest with somebody else in your life.
0: Randy, I didn't even prompt you to say it, but you just did. The easiest way to determine if you have a drinking problem is simply ever wondering or asking yourself, do I have a drinking problem? Because that is your answer.
1: Everybody knows. Everyone who's been in denial, they
0: try to pretend that, that everything is fine. And you did it smart. You know. Perhaps you didn't go through the AA route, but what you did is a similar avenue is you created a team, right? It's You just mentioned yeah. your first week of sobriety, you had a counselor, you had a therapist, you had a support staff helping you navigate sobriety, and that's important, right? Absolutely. Um,
1: it can be done solo, and I think that given the strength of my aha moment, I think I probably would have been able to get through it fine without that support. I like to think that. I don't know. But I do know that I did have that support, and I utilized that support, and it helped me, and it brought me value, and it made it a whole lot easier to navigate.
0: And speaking of support, thank you again for helping me stay sober. And and Randy, I understand you are about to launch your own podcast. <laughs> and talking about accountability, we're going to put it on the line, <laughs> and, and it, you're going to do it. And tell us about your podcast, when it's going to launch, what it's going to be about and how we can find it.
1: Um, The name of the podcast is the No Regrets Podcast. I believe that we each have our own journey in life and we get to live our life without regrets. And that's about living your own life on your terms, letting go of judgments about the past, making powerful visionary choices for your future, living life in the moment, fully, fully engaged and knowing that there's nothing else you'd rather be doing than being right here, right now.
0: Randy, send me the link when that podcast is live. I will listen, I will subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Oh, absolutely.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Randy had some great stuff to say, and I don't want to put any words in Randy's mouth, but I think when he said, this doesn't have to be a struggle, it's a choice, I totally agree with that. It is a choice. We can be positive and we can be negative in life. And that has a huge outcome of how things are going to go. But he also says it doesn't have to be a fight. And this is where I don't want to put words in Randy's mouth. I think Randy already surrendered. What that means is you cannot fight this beast called alcohol. It overpowers you. You can't fight it. The only way you can fight it is really when you give up and surrender. I know that doesn't make much sense at all. But maybe Randy, at that point after his DUI, where he just said, I couldn't take a drink the next day, maybe he had already surrendered. In Recovery Elevator, I like to have all types of guests on the show. They don't all go the traditional route of AA or rehab to get sober, because there are so many different ways to do this. Nate, who was on episode, I think, four, five, six, or seven, he's only been to a handful of AA meetings. In fact, I don't even think he's an alcoholic. But his life is so much better without alcohol. So I want to have a variety of people on this show. But one thing's for certain, don't listen to somebody and say, well, that person didn't go to AA and that person basically just doesn't drink and doesn't really seem like it's that big of a deal for him." I don't want to tell you any plan to take, but you always want to do more than you think is enough when it comes to sobriety. Again, This is not like a college SAT test where if you shut the book 15 minutes before your final exam, you're still going to get a good grade, but maybe not that 96. You got a 92. You're still going to get into college, right? But with drinking, you either drink or you don't. The stakes are a lot higher. All right. You might be an alcoholic if, and this is from Tommy in Norway, you might be an alcoholic if the always returning problem of just having one pint and then, okay, last one, and then it cannot do any wrong to just have one more and then waking up still half drunk, feeling miserable after yet you drank another 15 pints the night before. You might be an alcoholic if you are the life of the party. And these are from Lulea. You might be an alcoholic if it drives you nuts to see someone leave a half beer around at a party and you sometimes go up and finish it and you drink all the half-empty beverages yourself. You might be an alcoholic if everybody's gone to bed and you're still drinking. Email us at info at recoveryelevator.com. Give us some good You Might Be an Alcoholic If stories yourself. Here's one of my favorites from myself. You might be an alcoholic if, while driving through the streets of Barcelona with your friend Sean driving, you've got a giant map in your hand, and finally you say, damn it, we are just going to stop and ask some locals. You roll down your window, and midway through asking for directions, you puke all over the side of the car, and after you puke, you act like nothing happens and say, yeah, where is Highway 23? We're, we're, we're going to Granada. And the look on their face is astounding. Recovery Elevator, next week, we are going to hear from Lee Pepper. He is the marketing CEO for Foundations Recovery Network. He's going to talk to us about rehab centers and what their program does. They also have a program called Heroes in Recovery, and that's a great interview. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the steps back up. You can do this.